How do you like this sling? Brother Bob Hooper made my day today. He gave me a birthday card and a birthday present. Today's my spiritual birthday. And I like that one a lot better than I do my physical. Physical is August the 17th, 1936, which makes me 54. But today, July the 15th, 1130 this morning, 21 years ago, I was born again. The thing I liked about Brother Bob's card, the card is nice and the gift is nice. That's what the gift is, and I, I appreciate the gift. I'm like a little child. I never got over uh, being excited about gifts. But the greatest gift I ever had was the gift of everlasting life when the Lord saved me. But Brother Bob wrote something in here. It said, to my birthday nurse on his spiritual birthday, I thank God he used you to help me or help him save this wretched soul. Well, Bob was saved when I was up there in a meeting in Iowa. Now, one thing better than rejoicing over my salvation is seeing someone else saved. So that just makes my day today. I, I, I'm entitled to have a spell. You understand that, don't you? Well, anybody else has one today, I'm entitled to one. Well, 21 years ago at 1130, I was running up and down the street telling folks what Jesus had done for me. And I... I don't run up and down the street anymore. I just run up and down the country. But there's still an excitement about it. I know some folks say you get over it, but I, I've never gotten over it. I don't think you can get over it. In fact, I don't believe you want to get over it. Because it's not just the place, it's the person you meet at the place. And I like to go by the place in Tupelo, Mississippi, where I was saved, but I very seldom get to do that. Because the place is not as important as the person. Because the person goes with me all the time. I magnify the place only because of the person. Because if the Lord hadn't come to live in me, the place would be immaterial. So I rejoice in that. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you'll notice the outline, the subject this time is on the unfolding of redemption. I guess there are many approaches preachers use to the book of Ruth. You, some use her as a saved person in chapter 1. But I'll not do that. If you'll see the principal characters in, on your cover sheet, Ruth the Moabitess, Naomi the one who brought Ruth out of Moab and guided her to Boaz. Naomi will illustrate for us the Holy Spirit. I know she's not a perfect example of the Holy Spirit, but no one else is. But she is the person used by the Lord to bring Ruth out of Moab into Bethlehem. And the Holy Spirit is the one the Lord used to bring me out of sin and to Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, and feed me on the Lord Jesus Christ, save my wretched soul. If I had not had a spiritual Naomi, I never would have been saved. You wouldn't have been saved. As you'll see, Ruth, she is a type of a sinner. She's in Moab as you were in sin. Naomi will be like the Holy Spirit who leads you and guides you to your spiritual Boaz. And Boaz is Ruth's redeemer. This is the story of redemption. The setting, the time is in the days when the judges ruled. 
as you will see in verse 1. The places, Bethlehem, Moab, and Bethlehem. The four points in the series of the four chapters, Ruth in a foreign land, Ruth in Boaz's field, Ruth at Boaz's feet, Ruth in Boaz's family. Let's look in your outline at Ruth in a foreign land. Let's read together the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of the two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwell there about ten years. And Malion and Chilion died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. If you'll notice in your outline, number A, the first thing we will consider is Naomi's ruin. I have chosen Naomi rather than Elimelech. Elimelech dies, but Naomi continues to the end of the book of Ruth. So we'll, we'll study, first of all, the family in the land of promise. The people who make up the family, first Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. Naomi, pleasant. Malion, sick. Chilion, pining. The place where they lived, Canaan. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Judah, the house of praise. Now let me stop and just point out a fact. Here is a family in Bethlehem, in the house of bread, in Canaan, the place of rest, in Judah, the house of praise. This is a type of a family of God positionally where they're supposed to be, at rest, eating on the things of God, praising the Lord. The promises they must have enjoyed. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. God gave promises to the children of Israel prior to their entrance into the land of Canaan. A few of those promises we will consider. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then notice in Deuteronomy 11. We'll not read all the passage that you have in your outline. Only a few verses. Verse 11. Chapter 11. But the land, whether thou go to possess it, is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God 
are always appointed from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you rain in your land in your due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. Now let me establish for you the setting. Here is the family of God in the land of Canaan. Here's a group of people who expected all things to go well. They lived in the land of promise. It's like a child of God once he is saved. When you're first saved, you have some misconception of God's leadership. You expect him to operate according to your standard and your time schedule. But God doesn't always work the way you expect him to. If there was any group of people who should have been satisfied to remain in a land of praise, in a house of bread, it was Elimelech and his family. A group of people living in a sphere, an area, a region of the promises of God. God gave them promises. They live by those promises. The Bible said, if you'll be obedient and keep my commandments, I'll give you rain, the former rain, the winter rain, the latter rain. I'll make your crops to flourish. I'll make everything good for you. But look at point number two, the famine in the land. God has a way of blowing your mind. Unexpected circumstances, turbulences, problems, trials, difficulties, perplexes, reproaches, a famine in the land of promise, in the house of bread, in the land of praise, dryness, Deadness? You wouldn't have expected that, would you? Folks, here's the truth. I hope God lets me remember how I handle my dry times determines future usability. If you don't handle the dryness, you'll run out of Bethlehem and the position of praise, seeking a Moab. Now here's the truth. Material possessions and physical advantage took the place of spiritual priorities. Now, folks, this is, this is a message for this hour. If you ever let material position, possessions, your job, your money, your car, your bank account, become your top priority, you're likely to lose the land of praise, the house of bread, and end up in Moab. I won't know how you got there.
Well, I hope I remember what I'm preaching today. I know any material or physical thing to take priority over the spiritual realm. I want to live in the land of praise. I want to live with a house of bread. I want to live in a place of rest. What price do you put on rest? Peace. Joy of God. Here's a family who misjudges and misevaluates a famine. They use a famine to justify a backslidden condition or an escape for self-advantage and betterment. Oh, you can get a better job, but what will it do to you spiritually? Has it ever occurred to you that in the wilderness the devil offered Jesus the world? If the devil doesn't take it away from you, he gives it to you. You'll be in bad shape when he offers you more in Moab than you can get in Canaan. Something happens in Canaan. Famine hits. Dryness. Lack. Want. Need. As I said, unless you know how to handle the dry time, the lack, the trial. That's what famine does. It tries you. That's its purpose. They didn't have the promise of the, of the psalm to understand famine. God said, I'll keep you alive in famine. They didn't know that. They expected the crops to grow. They expected the blessings of God. But famine comes. All right, now let's look. Here's a man whose name is my God is King. As far as we know, Elimelech was a worshiper of God. He has a godly family. Family, famine, ladies and gentlemen, is not just for the sinners, it's for the saints. Famine comes to your house. Want comes to your house. Lack comes to your house. Trials and difficulties and problems come your way. Here was a famine. Elimelech, being a man of God, having a woman whose name was Pleasantness, desired to supply the need of his family. Folks, many of the pressures of this day for the head of the household. If a man is worth his weight at all, he desires to supply the need of his family. He should. The Bible requires it. When your bank account is empty, your material possessions are lacking, there's dried at your house, you're living in a land of promise, yet the promises don't seem to work. What do you do then? You say, but God's unfair. No, God was working a famine to eventually get Ruth to the Redeemer. Oh, you say, why is things so bad? It's like being saved. You've got to know how bad it is before you find out how good it is. <laughs> You've got to experience ruin before you experience redemption.
Oh, here is famine. I can picture Elimelech as he goes in and says to his wife, Oh, wife, what shall we do if? Notice in your outline, the fear of economic ruin. Don't tell me you don't live with this. What am I going to do if my job fails? These evangelists say, what are we going to do if the support doesn't come in? That's the reason why an evangelist always looks for an offering in every letter. (laughs) You don't ever get over that. You always look for money in an envelope. And I've intended to you. There are times in your life you just live from day to day. The fear of economic ruin. This was Elimelech. He and his family lived with a fear. They lived in the realm of if. If this happens. What are we going to do if the crop doesn't come in? What do we do if the rain doesn't come? What do we do if we have nothing to eat? What shall we do? 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible says, Fear hath torment. It causes worry, mental anxieties, physical agony, spiritual distress. If you live with fear today, you're living in torment. Tortured. Persecuted. Fear keeps you in bondage. This is the reason Jesus would tell the disciples, Fear not. I need to hear from God when he says, Fear not. You need to notice one thing. In the first five verses, God is not mentioned at all. There is no acknowledging him. There is no conversation with God. There is no reference to the Lord. But from verse 5 to the rest of the chapter, there's 11 times references made to the Lord. You know why? Because later they got in Moab. When they got in Moab, they turned to God. Danger comes when you consult God last. Oh, you look at your circumstances. You discuss it with your mate. You discuss it with your family. You make a decision to better yourself. You make it because of economic ruin. You say it's necessity. End up in Moab. Then say, God, get me out of here. It'd be better not to get there than have to get out. All right, here's famine in the land. Fear. Notice your outline. Many things are here. The family encounters hard times. Their reputation is at stake. Their loss of respect is in danger. You say, that doesn't amount to much. It does if you're godly. Your name stands for something. It's like Elimelech, my God is king. He knew if he had economic ruin in the land of promise, it ruined his reputation. That's a good desire, ladies and gentlemen. I'd rather die than lose my reputation for God. But the answer to that 
is not physical and material success, but spiritual liberty and freedom. God's not considered yet. The family is in fear. Physical agony and spiritual distress and mental anxieties are flooding them. And they become afraid of impending disaster. What if a crop failure comes? The famine is set in. They don't know how long it will last. They don't know what it's for. They're restless in the land of rest. They're filled with uneasy feelings and anxious thoughts. And fear motivates the imagination. It provides a motive for action. It furnishes an incentive or inducement to action. The fear of God's all right. This is not the fear of God. This is the fear created in the imagination. Look at verse number 6 in parenthesis. The imagination creates and formulates non-existent circumstances and situations as they do or will exist. If they exist in the mind as fact, though they may be fiction, the inward results will be the same as if they were real. What that means is simply this. Your imagination can create a situation that may or may not ever exist. But if you face it in your imagination, it will have the results as though it was real. You're likely to make a choice and decision governed by what you created in your imagination rather than what God gave you in Revelation. We're likely to say, I believe this is what we should do based on our situation. That's wrong, ladies and gentlemen. I've done it, though. I've created in my imagination situations. Made choices and decisions according to what I formulated. Thought they were right decisions. Ended misled. Self-deception is the worst deception of all. Moved by fear of economic ruin. Desire for release of mental pressure. Desire for better circumstances. Desire for supply for your family. Desire for better conditions. Elimelech is driven by fear. Fear is set in. Fear of the future. Fear of economic crisis and disaster. Depleting of all resources. If supposition and presumptuousness occupy the mind, deliberations, which is the care for thinking, out to clearly understand what one is doing or is to do with proper evaluations will be impossible. Have you ever counseled with anyone or you and your wife ever had a discussion when one of you presupposed some things? You had suppositions or presumptions? No matter how you try to talk the other out, they stayed by their guns. This is true. Their minds being set. The imagination is concreting the mind. The patterns are being formulated. The attitudes are being set to make a wrong decision. However, you can't condemn them. You can't criticize them. Folks, we're facing that now. One of the ways the devil wants to get you out of where you're supposed to be 
and sh it's to show you Moab and tell you you'd have it better in Moab than you have it in Canaan. Fear causes the imagination to run away with a person, maybe to do things he never intended to do. I can hear Elimelech, my God is king. I'll serve you. Thank you for the rest. I'll praise you. I'll give you glory. We're living in the land of promises. Then the crop failure came and proved his faith Neil. We have a tendency to say more than we believe. You declare a truth, you will be tried with it. When you kneel at an altar and say, I'll serve God no matter what, the what's coming. The no matter what you never dreamed of, you never thought possible, is coming. Oh, how arrogant we are, proud of our faith. So we declare it and God tests it. And we, like Peter, say, never will I deny thee. Only to find a place of repentance when the spiritual cock crows. Oh, oh my. Mm. Doing things you never thought you'd do. Now, I promise you, Brother Jimmy, and I promise Brother Petty I was going to get through this whole chapter in one morning, but it doesn't look like I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate like everything to be told I told you so. <laughs> Folks, I believe what I'm dealing with is some of the areas we're facing. I really believe the devil's doing all he can to get folks out of local churches where they are, have a God-given place, a church that God brought them to with spiritual blessings, promises, praise. And the devil's doing everything he can to destroy your finances, your material possessions, and give you physical problems to drive you away from the church where God put you. What I'm fixing to say is not very popular, but I believe it with all my heart. Your purpose in being in a place is not according to your job, but your church. That's not very popular. I hear men say, well, I got to leave here. I got a better job. You go to a better job without the leadership of God, you'll end, in a Moab, end up in a Moab and lose the land of praise and you rest and you bread. And I'd rather be in Bethlehem and have my bread and my praise and my rest and God and nothing than I had the Moab with bread and no God. Amen. But let me say something to you. Crisis can come your way. You'll do things and say things and think things you never thought you'd ever think, do, or say. 
Don't you say, it won't ever happen to me. Many times parents with small children say, why don't this family over here correct their kids? They know better than let their teenagers do what they're doing. That's easy to say, but wait till yours become teenagers. <laughs> Woo, you'll say some things and do some things in you never thought you'd do and say. I've experienced some things here over these past two or three years I never thought I'd ever experience. I've done some things and thought some things I never thought I'd do or think. No need to go into that. That's none of your business. You've got them too. All I'm saying is, famine can come your direction. Trial can come. Problems can come. You don't know how to deal with them. Your imagination runs away. The mental anxiety is present. Afflictions are on every hand. Difficulties. Yet you cry out and say, Oh, my King, my God, I'll serve you. Yet it becomes so dry and so difficult, you can't find God. Where's God? There's nothing but dryness. Where's God? That's when you're supposed to live by the promises, not the emotions. trouble with us we is we live according to our feelings in the land of Canaan when dryness is on. You say, what causes us to do that? We grow used to it in the time of plenty. When we walk out into the fields and they're green, food's on the table, money's in the bank, we say, God's good to me. We sit around and tell the family, boy, it's good to live by faith. <laughs> you're not living by faith, you're living by sight. <laughs> you say, how do you know? You can tell when the famine hits. The famine proves whether faith was real in the time of prosperity. Anyone can say, I'm living by faith in God's blessing. Look at all the promises being fulfilled. Health and wealth. <laughs> if you was right, you'd be cured. And if you was right, you'd have all the food and all the money you need. And just send the money to me and put a seed of faith in here and everything will be all right. Sounds good. It's easy to live during that time. I like to live in the time of plenty. I like to live when there's money in those letters. <laughs> Boy, nothing makes me feel any better than to say, praise God, God's blessing me. I won't tell you, I'm in the will of God, hallelujah. I'll never, I'll never stop serving God. I'll tell you everything's just great. And then the letters are empty. And there's a God bless you at the end of it. Hey, <laughs> like one old boy, I went to preach this meeting, Brother Bob, and... Uh, he got up two or three nights and said, I'm glad this evangelist lives by faith. Well, I mean, he said, he, said, he said we wouldn't have one that didn't live by faith. And boy, it sure did take a lot of faith to live on what he gave. I'd driven, seemed like, about three to four hundred miles. 
And I, got, I think they gave me $63. Living by faith. That's when the famine sets in. When there's not enough money in the check you receive to meet your needs. That's famine, folks. Famine sets in. That's when nervousness arises. That's when the wife begins to dream of economic ruin. No beauty parlors. <laughs> I'd have to give up my makeup. What am I going to do this? No second car. Famine could get to no car at all. Oh, all I'm saying to folks is that fear can drive you. It can become a motivating factor rather than love. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. It's easy to live when prosperity is there. But when famine comes, that's when your faith is tried. Your faith is sent to see if it was real in a time of prosperity. Job proved that. Job proved that he could serve God in prosperity. God allowed the devil to take it away. And he proved he could serve God in famine. In affliction. Well here, fear causes the imagination to run away with a person. Maybe to do things he never intended to do. Fear causes the imagination to provide the dungeon of despair. That's bondage. Folks, fear will put you in bondage. Decisions you make on fear place you in bondage. Shackles. The, the dungeon of despair, the jury for the verdict of doom. Have you ever felt on the inside of you? You've judged yourself. You condemned yourself. You passed sentence on yourself. You became your own judge and jury. You made your own decision. You passed sentence upon yourself. That's what fear does to you. The gallows for the lynching of self. This is not being brought to the end of yourself by God. The grave of destruction. Fear causes peace to take flight with the wings of the wind. O cursed land of the earth, from thee let my soul be free. For in bondage wish thou keep all that is precious and dear to me. O blessed land of God's reality, to thee let my soul flee. For in freedom wish thou keep all that is precious and dear to me. That just simply says, you make a decision according to ill, you're in bondage. Make a decision according to God, you have liberty and freedom. Regardless of the famine. Regardless of the circumstances. The small b, the frustration of emotional conflicts. If you'll keep up with your outline, first is the fear of economic ruin. Second, the frustration of emotional conflicts. Frustration emphasizes making all efforts and plans useless and vain, and thus keeping a person from what he wants or is set out to do. This is Elimelech. Naomi, Malion, Chilion, in the land of praise, say, we'll serve God. We'll love God. We'll operate according to the promises. Frustration sets in. Emotional crisis. Up and down go the emotions. You pray. You feel better. The next morning you get up, look at the crop. 
it's not any better. You feel worse. Have you ever had your emotions on a roller coaster? You're up and down, up and down, up and down. Don't be critical of folks who are on the roller coaster. They may not know how to get off. Give them time. As I said yesterday, to work your way through some things. The problem, they hastily made a decision to leave Canaan, to go into Moab. They should have stayed, but they didn't. As I said, this is ruin, this is disaster, this is destruction. It looks bad. But folks, out of the, out of the midst of all of this will come grace and Ruth. You've never appreciated Ruth until you see what she came out of. That's like Ephesians 2. You'll never appreciate what you are until you see what you came out of. Oh, I was lost and dead without God, without Christ, and without hope in darkness. But God reached down by grace in the midst of that to bring me to Jesus Christ, who redeemed me. That's what will come out of it. Right now, though, ruin's coming. Disaster's coming. And I believe this. No matter how much famine you face and ruin you experience, God can give you grace somewhere and get you out. Well, praise the Lord. I believe Elimelech had decided to serve God, but his emotions caused internal conflict. Struggles between his mind and his flesh. Disagreement between reasoning. Clash between conviction and opinion. Fights between the will and the soul. Folks, in the time of famine, you don't know whether it's conviction or opinion. Many times, in rather than personal conviction, it's opinion placed in you by someone else. Oh, wicked counselors... Cruel advisors who try to tell you what you need to do and where you need to go for self-advantage. You'd be better if you left this church. You'd be better if you left this town. Don't you know God doesn't intend for you not to feed your family? You know God intends for you to feed your family. But church and God and spiritual liberty and freedom is what you want more than anything else. Or at least it should be. It's not always, but it should be. Fear, anger, love, joy, and grief amalgamate. They combine, they mix, they blend, they unite together to frustrate concentration, thus hindering, all, hindering us from arriving at a right conclusion. Have you ever been in a place to where when you tried to reason it out, you were frustrated? You waited out. You could come to no conclusion. You had a mixture of emotions. Fear was on one side. You claimed a promise. You experienced joy momentarily. Yet you didn't know which way to go. You didn't know which way to turn. And you had emotional conflicts. This is Elimelech. What will I do with the famine? Unexpected circumstances have come. I'm experiencing emotional conflict I never thought I could experience. I'm searching for God. All is dry. All seems dead. All's coming to an end. 
All around me, folks are experiencing deadness and dryness. What do I do now? This is a limit. Where do I turn? I don't miss these next three truths under this frustration. Look at the small one in parenthesis. Discontentment can force dislodgement. It can drive or force you out of the place or position. You say, what is that place and position? It's the place and position of God's promise. God only promised to bless them in the land of Canaan and nowhere else. They will see more blessings in Moab than there is in Canaan. But they're material and physical, not spiritual. If you're really saved, the devil could give you the world. And you'd be all of all people most miserable without the spiritual blessings of God. Discontentment can force dislodgement. It can cause a strong dislike for what one has and cause him to wish for something else. Now be honest, folks. In your heart, haven't you said, I'm so dry. Things are so dead in our church. I'd be better off somewhere else, or they'd be better off without me. It's hard when you have discontentment. <clears throat> You don't realize discontentment's the full run of revelation. So it causes a dislike for the dryness and the lack and the want. And it causes greater distress over difficult situations. Elimelech's love for his family and grief over the circumstances mingled to produce a weight of responsibility and causes a dread in facing another day. His life becomes filled with tension and stress, the pressure to provide. The number two, desperation can justify relocation. Desperation can be caused from a fear of utter destitution. Famine can cause a person to be reckless and run any risk to escape. Desperation can cause a greater fear of circumstances than a fear of God. Hence the attitude becomes, get out while we can. Surely God will understand. Discouragement can produce disconsolateness. Disconsolateness means to be without hope, to be unhappy, to be cheerless, to be dejected and sad. Disconsolateness devaluates spiritual priorities. Discouragement cures disheartenment and disheartenment causes disheartenment and disheartenment causes disapproval. Disapproval rejects what is and seeks for something more satisfactory. Dismal prospects, dark, gloomy, dreary, may produce fear over the future. Being discouraged, one has no courage to face another day, to go on, to fight another battle, to labor in dryness or famine. Oh, what a terrible condition. May I say again, folks, I'm facing this all across the country in our churches. 
I really believe with all of my heart the devil's doing all he can to get the godly people out of the spiritual churches. And if we don't wake up to the fact, it's not your material or physical advantage you're after, but the spiritual, you're going to leave the land of rest where God placed you. Now, I don't even know whether you're going to agree with this or not, but that's all right. Brother Tim believes it. I don't believe you should join the church of your choice. I don't believe in joining the church of your choice. The church of God's choice is the land of Judah. Place of praise. It's a place of rest. And it's a place of bread. But it's also a place of famine. Don't you know you got to have wintertime in order to have harvest? springtime. And when the wintertime hits, you say, well, boy, it's gotten cold and dead around here. God's killing bugs. Any farmer tell you the colder the winter, the better the harvest? And then church got sowing and, and reaping. They're going to have wintertime, and when wintertime sets in, You have to stay in the house and huddled up closer during that time. You got that, Brother Jim? Oh, thank God. I, I want to tell you, folks. Famine comes in the life of the believer in the church. That's not time to leave the church. That's not time to leave God. That's time to stay where God wants you unless He tells you to go. And if He doesn't, you're still living in a land of promises. Our churches are being depleted today because the devil shutting down jobs. A few years ago, God told me the way the devil's going to get to our church is through the jobs of our people. He has done it. He does a good job of it. Something you need to realize, though, the devil owns the world system. As soon as you get where God wants you to be, you're likely to experience a famine. Not always. Some of us, God can trust with prosperity. Bill White's just not one of them. Isn't it terrible when you're sitting next to someone God trusts with prosperity? And he trusts you with famine? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> now, God, he can't be right. He's got to be lying somewhere. That's when you go home, get in your bedroom, and say, Dear God, what have I done? <laughs> oh, Lord, I had to do something. I'm backslidden somewhere. Everybody else getting blessed but me. I'm in famine. God's killing your bugs. He's doing good, too. 
<laughs> well, he's getting ready for a better harvest. He's getting rid of those bad attitudes you had. And he's, he's purifying your faith. And he's getting to where he trusts you more. Woo, thank God for the winter times. But I want to be where I can handle them. I want to stay in Bethlehem. I want to stay in Judah. I don't want to run out and go to Moab. Look at this next truth, though. The forbidden country enticing hills. Oh, mm, the family and the land of promise. The famine in the land of promise. Oh, but my, my, we're still looking. First was here, the fear. Now the frustration. Look at the forbidden countries and Tyson Hills. Elimelech and his family are prime candidates for temptation. Like a lamb for slaughter or a mouse for a trap. That's what famine does to you. It sets you up. There's famine in the land of Canaan, but not in the land of Moab. The enemy's land. That's the reason the book of Proverbs and Psalms teaches the same truth. Don't you go seeking after the ungodly when the ungodly has it good. Don't say, why do all these ungodly worldly people have it better than me? They've never had it better than you. If you're saved, they can't have it as good as you do till they get saved. You say, look what a fine house they live in. You got one in glory. Say, look at all the money they got. You got something money couldn't buy. Oh, I don't have to, I don't have to preach to you about that. But the, he had a problem with lust. Now you say, what, what kind of problem with lust is there here? It's the lust of the eyes. Oh, he had a problem with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Imagine walking through parched fields and observing the green fields of Moab in the distance. There, what's the danger of optical illusion, something misleading in appearance? Oh, dear God, help me to remember. The devil paints it better than what you have it in the time of famine. He says it would be better for you somewhere else rather than here. What did they say at the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt? It had been better for us. What did they say at Cadiz Barnea? It'd be better for us to stay in Egypt. Let's appoint us a captain and return to Egypt. All the enticing Moab, the enticing green plains of Moab when the world paints a picture in another city and another town and another place where you can have it better than what you're having now. This was the condition of Elimelech. Craving the far country. A person never desires the forbidden territory more than when he sees it the way he wants to see it. When you see your position and your place is less then the rest, you'll desire the rest rather than the place where God placed you. Imagination can create that. Moab could be the enticement, the bait that has a hook in it. A person is in danger when the land of Moab looks better than the land of praise. When a person believes the people of Moab have it better than he does. The blindness of deception Approval of another's lifestyle, especially those of Moab, 
may come from a false impression, a false notion, a false idea, a misleading appearance, or a misevaluation of priorities. And folks, our young folks are experiencing peer pressure in this area as never before. Their peers are saying, come over here and you'll have a good time. Come over to Moab and you'll have all the sex you want to and all the liquor you want to and all the partying you want to. That looks good to the fleshly nature. Our young folks all across the world, but especially in this country, are now being allured out of our churches into the Moabs. Promises of pleasure. Promises of possessions. Promises of thrills that will excite them. But ladies and gentlemen, it'll destroy them. We know that. We know that. But they don't. But sometimes we as parents make choices and decisions to place them in temptation they should never have had. Justifiable excuses can be given for plotting one's course of action. Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Outward appearance can appease inward conflicts. Calm and quiet the person in carnal security. Carnal contentment can be a substitute for spiritual peace, especially when a person uses circumstances to determine what he will do. Look at the hardness of the heart. Hebrews 3.13 said, Harden through the deceitfulness of sin. Elimelech decides to go. He sets his mind. He forms his decision with an unmovable and unbreakable mold. His mind is made up. He's going to Moab. He becomes unfeeling and pitiless toward the things of God, the place of rest, the house of bread, the land of praise. You say, I could never get that hardened. Yes, you can. You can see problems in your own church that harden you to the extent that release is in the land of Moab. You can say, our church is so dry and so dead, I'll leave. You don't have a right to leave until God tells you. Until He releases you. You have the liberty and the freedom to do so. But He becomes unfeeling. Then He becomes unbending and unyielding. He's made His mind up. He's going this direction. His course is charted. His sails are set. He only has to load His boat and sail away. To him he leaves the bad to go to the good. He is to win and not lose. There's no talking him out of it. There's no praying on his part or seeking divine guidance. No asking God if this is right. Now I'm going to... Well, Jimmy, I'm taking longer. I don't know. I'm going to take to about seven more minutes. That'd be okay? I don't want to... Not get through the first point. <laughs> no, the A under the first point. See, it's my desire not just to teach you the book of Ruth, but to make it relevant to this day. Folks, this truth right here is destroying our churches, our families, our homes. 
Conditions in this country will be worse instead of better. You say, is there any hope? Grace. Grace. Grace and grace alone. It's always been grace. Grace is coming later. Now it's the road to wreck. The road to ruin. The road to destruction. We know what's going to happen. If we'd been them, we wouldn't have known. They're experiencing it. There's a difference in knowing it with hindsight. And facing it with foresight. That's when you need insight. Alright, the forsaking of the land of promise. An escape route to freedom may end up in enslavement. An easement may become an endangerment. Elimelech and his family are gone. There's a vacancy in Bethlehem. An unoccupied place, an empty space. They're not there anymore. What's sad when you look at offices supposed to be filled in a church and the people have gone to Moab. They moved. Not willing to pay the price to stay in the land of promise. Too much to give up. Too much to be asked. Where are Elimelech and his family? They've gone to Moab. Now don't miss this. Their intention is to sojourn, not to live. Look back in Ruth. Chapter 1. They didn't go to stay. They just went to sojourn. Verse 1. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn. Sojourn means a brief stay or temporary lodging. That's like just staying overnight at a motel. When they go to Moab, they leave the place of their rest, their bread, and their praise. They go to the fields of Moab. Their involvement causes them to stay longer than they intended. Look at verse 3. They continued there. In other words, they're accepted by the Moabites. They approve of the Moabites, and the Moabites approve of them. The Moabites give their daughters to Elimelech. Naomi's sons and Elimelech and Naomi give their sons to the Moabites' daughters, which are forbidden by the Lord. Their intention turns into a decision to dwell there. Verse 4. They dwelled ten years. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I can just hear Elimelech. Naomi, Melion, Chilion, let's go to Moab. We won't stay but a little while. Then we'll come back. Folks, you leave, leave where God wants you. It'll be grace if you get to come back like Naomi. Three came back. I mean, three didn't come back and only one did. Look at the funerals in the land of praise. I mean, in the land of Moab. Number four, Elimelech dies and leaves his wife and two sons. He leaves Canaan and goes to Moab to keep from dying and dies. Whew. You can't live. When you try to live, Jesus said he that gives up his life or keeps his life shall lose it. He that loses it shall keep it. After you're saved, your life is not your own. If you want to live, live in Canaan, not Moab. In Moab, you'll die. Or grace will have to rescue you. 
How many times have you thought you had freedom and you had bondage? And in that bondage, death came. He said, well, I'm still alive. Let me tell you something worse than you dying physically. That is everything dying around you. And everything you touch has got the stench of death on it. That's Moab. Oh, they went to sojourn. Then they continued. I can hear him say, well, let's stay just a little bit longer. Let's get just a little bit more money. Things are still bad over in Bethlehem. And before we go back, let's make just enough. But then they got to liking it. And put down their roots and dwelled and said, this is home. And God said, no. Lamelech, come on home. Chilion, come on home. Million, come on home. Hmm. Lamelech dies, leaves a wife and two sons. He leaves his wife and sons to provide for themselves in a foreign and forbidden land. Boy, I got touched by that. I wonder what he wished he'd left them and where he'd left them when he lay died. He brought them over into Moab to provide for them. And then the provider died. I don't know how long I live. One thing I want when I die, if Rachel's still alive, I want to leave her in the land of praise, in the house of bread. I don't want to leave her in Moab to make it for herself. Three graves, three widows. Give evidence to the high cost of sin. You can't continue in sin sooner or later. You must pay the consequences. Wages of sin's death. Sin brings suffering, sorrow, and shame. Sin will cost you a peace of mind, a place of service, and future opportunities. Beware of the devils. LSD. Lust, sin, and death. I'm going to close right there. And let me say to you. My purpose this morning is to paint a dismal picture of sin. To let you see what's happening in this day. What happened in that time can happen now. You will face circumstances, trials and problems and famines, ladies and gentlemen, in which you won't know what to do with either. The mind of God's not always easy to know. Many times you have to live by the promises of God, what He's already told you, rather than seeking for some new thing. It's easy to say, God, show me something, rather than let me live by what you've already shown me. Lord, where do you want me to go? No, you want me to stay where you've placed me. I'll stay here till you show me something else, till you give me something else. God, I'll claim the promises. I'll claim the supply in the time of famine. Then in the morning, the Lord willing, we're going to look at Naomi's return. I sure am glad it's a chapter two. <laughs> and a chapter three. But glory to God, I'm glad there's a chapter four. It's one thing to be in a foreign land.
something else to be in Boaz's field. Then something else to be at his feet. But the glory is to be in his family. <laughs> 